and the Lord Jesus Christ. The text that we have today is very much applied to the individual, but as we were just singing that beautiful song, I think this text also applies to the church in general. The call to obedience and the call to seek and follow after the will of God. If you were to ask, I think, any group of Christians this morning to name their top four or five questions, one of the questions that would continually rise to the top would be something along the lines of, how can I discern God's will? Or more specifically, what is God's will for my life? Who among us has not asked that question? What is God's will for my life? Is this the person I should marry? Is now the right time to change jobs? Is this the right college? And so on. I may be weird in this, but through scripture reading and prayer, I seldom get the answer I expect. Now, I'm not saying this morning that we should not bring our prayers, concerns, and petitions to God. Absolutely, we should. But oftentimes, the answer is not what we expect. It's often very simple and right in front of us. Just be faithful and pursue holiness is frequently the answer to our question. Be faithful and pursue holiness wherever I have placed you is often the answer. Live a life of obedience is the frequent admonition of the Bible. This is one question that is answered over and over in the epistle that John writes first to us. Do you want to know God's will for your life? In chapter 1, God's will for our lives is to walk in the light and not in darkness and to confess our sins. In chapter 2, in verses 3 through 6, that we'll read again today, we read that God's will for our lives is to be imitators of Christ and obey the commandments. Lovingly obey the commandments. We'll also see today, further in our reading, that God's will for us is to love our brothers and sisters, and that this is walking in the light. So Christians, God's will for you this morning is that we walk in the light, obeying his commands and loving our brothers and sisters. Let us be reminded of this as we turn to his holy word. Let us look at 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. We'll focus mostly on verses 7 through 11, but I want to get all of these in here to set the context. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved. I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, 
It is a new commandment that I am writing you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Thanks be to God for this word. So we initially began to look at 1 John way back in May of 2023 and then periodically once every month or month and a half I would have the privilege to stand before you to preach from this fantastic text. I'm afraid, um, even for myself, I've lost a little of the context of the whole book at this point. So I want to recapitulate some of that with you this morning, at least to remind us of the central ideas. It's important that we get the context of our passage today to fully understand it. The context is both literary and historical. Both of those are essential to a right interpretation. Context is key, as one of my seminary professors would say. To begin with, remember that John is writing towards the end of the first century, and he's writing towards a group of believers that are struggling. He would later say that there were many that would leave or had left this congregation and followed after false doctrine, and he was urging those Christians in this context to stay strong and to hold firm and to trust the gospel. There was a form of heresy that had creeped into the church that John is addressing. This heresy is what we would call a proto-Gnosticism or docetic heresy. Docetism taught that Jesus was not truly human, that he only possessed what appeared to be a human body. In this view, there was a dichotomy between the spiritual and the earthly. There was a kind of enmity between that which was flesh and that which was seen as spiritual. In this heretical view of docetism, God could never dirty himself to become a man. God must remain pure and spiritual. Right from the beginning, John reaffirms to the church that he and the other apostles were eyewitnesses. In fact, they beheld, they touched, they heard, and they saw this man, Jesus. And it was their conviction and conclusion that he was the only Son of God and Savior of the world. If this is true, and we are his children... John goes on to tell us in the rest of these first two chapters what we will look like. Our behavior, our ethics, how we act will be very different from the world. And John gives us a series of tests, three separate tests in these first two chapters. These tests are a kind of spiritual inventory are we following God's will? Are we living our lives as a Christian should live? You might say that these tests 
ask us if our talk is matching our walk. If you look with me in the first chapter, or I'll remind you, in verses 6 and 7, we get our first test. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This is contrasted with, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. In verses 8 and 9, we get another expansion of this test. So we don't deceive ourselves and come to some idea that Christians are perfect in their walk. If we say we have no sin, John declares, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is followed by that great gospel promise that we hear frequently from this pulpit. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Finally, chapter 1 ends with the summation If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Again, there are those who would claim, and it seems that John was dealing with this, those who would claim a higher spiritual life, a life in which they had achieved some kind of sinless perfection. They had transcended the earthly to the spiritual. No one is without sin this morning. And God has made provision for sinners through Jesus Christ alone. And that is why John reminds us of this. In the midst of his test, there is this great gospel reminder of confession. Let me make this crystal clear this morning. There is some difficult teaching ahead. But Christians will never be sinless in this life perfectly obeying the commands of God. Christians sin, but our lives cannot be characterized by that sin. John is consistently arguing against a view of the Christian life where there is no change in a person after conversion. The gospel comes, the spirit renews and regenerates the heart. There cannot but be a change. Some of that change is immediate, and we know some of that change takes an entire lifetime of God's sanctifying work in us. But a person who continually walks in darkness and lives a life of contented disobedience is not a Christian, according to our text. A reminder comes in chapter 2 of the gospel and Christ's atonement. That he is a propitiation for our sins. That he intercedes for us. Again, this gospel encouragement. Don't be discouraged by these challenging words. Test yourself and your faith. But be reminded of the gospel. John moves from questioning our overall walk in the light and confession of sin to question our obedience and imitation of Christ. It's another way of essentially looking at the same thing. To obey Christ, to obey the commands, is to be walking in the light. Are we walking in the light and in obedience to the commands of God this morning? 
Are we following the will of God for our, our lives by following hard after Him and His commandments? So in verse 3 we read in chapter 2, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. It is the same manner of questioning we see in chapter 1, now beginning again in chapter 2. In verse 4 we read, Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. This is supported in verse 5 with the statement, But whoever keeps His word... In Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Again, John sums it all up in verse 6. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's it. We should be imitators of Christ. So why does John labor this point so much? And we haven't even gotten to the third test. There are different nuances, to be sure, between these tests. But John is laboring obedience because he's trying to show that Christians will be different. And I have a fear that many in his day, as in our day, many may be counterfeit believers. Many who take the name of Christ as a false profession of faith. If that seems harsh, look to what John says in verse 19. John wrote about those who had been in fellowship with the church. And he said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. These are sober words, and they echo similar words found in 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter urges us all to be more diligent in making our call and election sure. Don't let this lead you to despair this morning. If you are falling under conviction of sin, if these verses are hard for you, be of good cheer. The convicting work of the Spirit in our lives is in fact Proof that God is dealing with us and that He loves us and that He cares for us. A non-believer is not afflicted with doubt or concern over sin. The very act of God convicting us is a sign of His grace and the Spirit's work in our lives. Don't let these scriptural warnings cause you to doubt. Let them spur your desire for holiness and for more of Christ and conformity to His nature. Let that spur you on this morning. John briefly breaks off from his spiritual test in verse 7 to interject something incredibly important where he says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old one you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. God reminds us of an old commandment that is ultimately obedience to his word. Now remember that this is a call to obedience because we are saved, not to be saved. 
this distinction is often messed up by we humans who somehow think we can earn God's favor. We are called to obey the old commandment because God's favor has fallen on us because of his grace and mercy to us. We don't do this to earn God's favor. Think back to the Ten Commandments. Why was Israel, and I will argue the church today, called to obey the commandments of God? In Exodus chapter 20, Yahweh said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He then gives them the Ten Commandments. God did not ask the people to obey first so that he might save them. It was because of God's great redemption that the people are compelled to obey in the assurance of pardon this morning. That's what we see there. The people respond to Moses pouring out the atonement and reading of the book of the covenant. And the people respond, we will obey. Obedience to Christ is always a response of his graciousness. And we have so much more to be thankful for this morning. Christ has come. Christ has brought us not only slavery from Egypt and freed us from that, but he's freed us from sin and Satan. We've been raised to walk in newness of life. We've been reborn with a new heart. How much more should our union with Christ drive us to seek him and obeying him? This is where perhaps a good Protestant might interject. Well, haven't we been delivered from the law of through Christ. Isn't the law passé? We have been delivered from the curse of the law because Jesus became a curse for us and hung on that cross, dying for our sins, rising again, and ascending to the right hand of the Father. We are no longer under condemnation. In union with Christ, we are clothed with His righteousness. The Father looks at former lawbreakers as his son, as his children. Christ kept the law on our behalf. Well, if that's the case, then why is John so vehemently arguing for obedience and a life of radical discipleship? Because this one who has been changed, who has truly received the grace of Christ, has a new nature. To be sure, the old nature rears its ugly head and we fight against it. But our overwhelming desire should be to please our Heavenly Father through obeying Him. And our lives will be characterized by obedience to God's commands. Let me remind you this morning of Jesus' words from Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus said. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven." 
but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the law is still active. In fact, Jesus comes to clarify and expand our understanding of the law. Jesus teaches something new. In a sense, to us, it seems that he expands the requirements. The law was actually never just about outward obedience, as many had supposed. But Jesus makes this clear that our inward heart desires have something to do with proper obedience and worship of God. This is why, I think in verse 8, John gets this specific, gives us this specific wording. He's already said this is an old commandment. And now he says, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This old commandment is new in Christ and is already here. But what does that look like in real life? How are we to understand this? What does it mean for us here and now in Ann Arbor in 2024? We can sum it up with a single word. Love. In light of the grace and salvation we have received from Christ, we are to love Him and our brothers and sisters and neighbors. That's the will of God for your life and the essence of the Christian life. So let's see how we get there to that this morning. So four times in John's writing, he uses the expression of an intele kane in Greek, a new commandment. We see it twice in our reading today. In 1 John 2, verse 7, we read, I am writing you no new commandment. But then, in apostolic wisdom, in verse 8, John clarifies, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing you. So what does he mean? 2 John, first, verse 5, clarifies again. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning. This is confusing language to be sure. So what is this commandment? The one that we've had from the beginning. The rest of that verse, 2 John verse 5 says, the one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. There it is, to love one another. John then answers what this love looks like in familiar language in verse 6 of his second epistle. He says, and this is love. It's like looking at a glossary. It's like, okay, what is the definition of love? Okay, here it is. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. This language and teaching do not originate in these two epistles, but in fact, they come from the lips of our Lord. In John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus said, 
a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The commandments are old, but can be summarized and fulfilled in love. When Jesus was asked by a lawyer, what is the greatest commandment? In Matthew 22, he responded and said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. We heard that in the reading from Deuteronomy. It's always been there. But Jesus makes it personal. Jesus goes on and saying it's not just about love. He says this is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depends all the law and the prophets. Love. I was not expecting when I began my studies to preach a sermon that ends and focuses so much on love. I was thinking, okay, obedience, obedience. But love is the key. The commandments are all about the love of God and the love of neighbor. You see, Christian, God wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants your soul. He wants every part of you to freely love Him. The Christian life is not about simply outward obeying what we think God wants us to do. It's about an inward desire and compulsion that compels us to love Christ, to love God. That pours out in loving obedience. That love comes willingly and freely from us because He first loved us. God sent His Son to draw us to Himself, to make us heirs of the kingdom. God loves us. He continues to love us and preserve us. That's why we are called to love Him. That's why we are called to love others and extend that love to our brothers and sisters and our neighbors. As I have loved you, Jesus said, love one another. This glorious era of the church, Christ's body, is seen in the love we have for one another. As Jesus loved, so should we. Let that sink in. Think of the life of Christ and the love that he showed. That's what we're to be imitating. That's fulfilling the law. As we return now to 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 we see that our next test of faith works all of this out. It's essentially a question of how does our profession of loving one another compare with our walk? Verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. This is then contrasted with the statement, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Why is there no cause for stumbling? He is abiding in Christ. He is walking in the light by loving his brother. And again, another contrasting statement in verse 11. 
and then we'll unpack this. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The one who hates his brother is described by John as being like a blind person, unable to feel their way around and stumbling in the dark. You will love your brothers and sisters this morning if you are in Christ. You will love your brothers and sisters this morning if you are walking in the light. By extension, and according to Jesus' summary of the law, we will also love our neighbors. This is the call of every believer in the church. How do we love our brothers and sisters and neighbors? First of all, I would suggest that we start by remembering that love is active. It is not passive. It's not a feeling like much literature or Hollywood would have us believe. Love may inspire moments of great passion and fire, but it is a consistent and steady devotion of oneself to others, whether that other be God or neighbor. Our love for one another should not merely be lip service. Love is seen in action through what we do. The key adjective I would use in describing biblical love is sacrificial. Jesus calls us to obedience, which is rarely easy. He calls us to a life of dying to self and living to the glory of God and love towards our fellow human beings. God's will is for each and every one of us to live out a life of sacrificial love. This is the heart of Jesus' teaching when he admonishes his disciples to count the cost, to be sure, but to take up their cross and follow him daily. So how do we do that practically? I have a list of a few things. It's certainly not exhaustive, but it can maybe get the meditations of our heart moving in the right direction. How do we show love practically to our brothers and sisters and our neighbors? Forgiveness. I begin there because that's one of the hardest things to do when we have been wronged or we perceive a wrong. How much should we forgive? Jesus said this, Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. No conditions given. Jesus just says, forgive. Even if it hurts, we are called to forgive. And who knows how many people will be led into the kingdom because we live a life of forgiveness and love towards neighbor, towards brothers, sisters. Our own forgiveness that we receive from God is in fact linked to how we forgive others. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
forgive us our debts as we, or in the same manner in which we, forgive others. How do you feel about that this morning? God forgiving us as we forgive others. Second word for you this morning, serve. Our church should have too many volunteers for things like Hope Clinic so that they have to open up more days for us to serve. We should be inundating our elders and deacons with requests for how we can serve the body of Christ and our brothers and sisters. We should be seeking ways to serve. But many of us, I'm afraid, we do sit back and wait for someone else to do it. Is that the love of Christ in us? A Christian serves brothers, sisters, and neighbor. Thirdly, we should give sacrificially. This includes our time, our money, resources. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Who or what is your treasure this morning? Is it Christ? Is it our wallets? How we use our money as Christians should differ greatly from the world. How much do we give to those in need? To those who are most helpless in society. To the church for the furtherance of the kingdom of God and the spreading of the gospel. Where's your heart this morning in regard to your finances? Does the way we spend money, our money, that God has given us, does the way we spend our money reflect the love of God to others? Jesus reminds us that even something small, like a cup of water given in his name, is something that he sees and he blesses. We are called in the New Testament to care for those who are most vulnerable and needy in our society do we extend love and mercy without compulsion because an even greater love and mercy has been bestowed upon us? I pray that we do this morning. To illustrate the point, I'm reminded of a story about the great evangelist John Wesley. While at Oxford, there was an incident that changed his life. Wesley had just finished paying for some pictures for his room when one of his chambermaids came to the door. It was a cold winter's day, and she was wearing nothing to protect her from the cold except a linen shawl or gown. That moment, he reached into his pocket to give her some money and found he had too little. Immediately, he was struck with guilt, and he realized that the Lord was not pleased with the way he had spent his money. He asked himself, Will thy master say, Well done, good and faithful steward? These are his words. Thou hast adorned thy walls with the money which might have screened this poor creature from the cold. O justice, O mercy, are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? We're not legalists. 
But consider why Wesley reacted as he did. Was it to legalistically earn God's favor? No. It was because Wesley had experienced the grace of God and the love of Christ that he desired to give of himself. And because he had been unwise with his money, he was unable to give. That experience compelled Wesley to live a life of sacrifice. In the future, he chose to extend mercy, even if it cost him the pleasures of this life. Are we, like Wesley, so in love with our Savior that we desire our love of neighbor to dominate our affections? Or are we more concerned about this year's vacation? Do we desire to support the kingdom and its work? Or are we focused on earthly things? Where our treasure is, there your heart will be also. We could proceed like this, but I think you understand my point. A Christian's sacrificial love should be pouring out of us because of the love of Christ to us. Thankfully, those of us in Bible-believing churches, evangelical churches, are still holding on to the truth and not compromising the gospel. But we could do better at loving one another. In some ways, it seems that in the 20th century, we almost gave up the cause of caring for the poor and the oppressed to more liberal mainline churches that only have a kind of social gospel. We who have the full gospel should be the leaders in those who care for neighbor, showing mercy to all. Before I close, I want to share with you a rather lengthy quotation from the 4th century saint and bishop Augustine. The quote comes from his treatise on the Christian life. In this quote... Augustine describes what it is like to be a Christian. He says, Let no one therefore deceive or lead another person astray. Let no one decide that he is a Christian unless he both follows the teaching of Christ and imitates his example. Do you think that man is a Christian who nourishes no needy person with his bread? who refreshes no thirsty person with his wine, whose table no one shares, under whose roof no stranger or wayfarer abides, whose garments clothe no naked person, whose helping hand assists no pauper, whose blessings no one experiences, whose mercy no one feels, who imitates the good in no way. Far be such an attitude from the minds of Christians. Far be it that any person of this sort be termed a Christian. Far be it that such a one should be called the child of God. He is a Christian who follows the way of Christ, who imitates Christ in all things, as it is written, he who says that he abides in Christ ought himself to walk just as he walked. He is a Christian who shows mercy to all, who is not disturbed by an injury, who does not permit the poor to be oppressed in his present presence, who assists the wretched and who succors the needy 
who sympathizes with the sorrowful and who feels the grief of another as his own, who is reduced to tears by the weeping of another, whose house is common property for all, whose door is never closed to anyone, whose table is shared by every poor person, whose food is offered to all, whose goods all share and no one else feels slighted, who serves God day and night, who meditates upon and considers his precepts ceaselessly, who makes himself poor in this world, that he may become rich in the eyes of God. This one whose whole thought is directed to God and whose hope is in Christ, who desires heavenly rather than earthly possessions, who condemns earthly goods so that he may acquire divine. As for those who love this world and who are content and well-pleased with this life, hear what the Scripture says to them. Do you not know that the friendship of this world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Augustine was an imperfect sinner, yet he could write and talk this way about living because he had experienced mercy and grace that changed him. Again, this is not about Christian perfectionism. It is about a heart that is changed and looking outward in love to God and neighbor. Do you desire the way of Christ, loving Him and our brothers and sisters this morning? I pray you do, because the Scriptures teach that this is an essential mark of a Christian. In closing, I want to encourage all of us a little this morning. First, if we have sin, we must confess that sin. Christ will receive our confession in repentance. Secondly, let's seek and desire Him above all things. And thirdly, love people. Ask the Spirit to continually refresh and open our eyes to see how we might love God and neighbor more. If you lack a love for others this morning, pray that Christ would renew within you His Spirit so that it would overflow to others. Others in this world who bear the image of our God. For this is the will of God. As Paul said in Romans 13.10, love is the fulfilling of the law. So let us love one another. Amen.